Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we learn why there are so many churches, and staff evangelist Josh Davis will share some insight from God's Word. As you and your family prepare for Christmas, remember to check out all of the Bible-based and Christ-centered gifts that are available on our website, swrc.com. With over 1,000 items, you can do your Christmas shopping and, at the same time, support Watchmen on the Wall. We have gifts from Jerusalem, Christmas-themed movies, and a huge selection of books and DVDs. SWRC.com. Shop for friends and family and support the ministry and outreach of Watchmen on the Wall. SWRC.com. In many communities, there seems to be a different church on every corner. Why are there so many churches? Dr. Kenneth Hill is here to answer that question. Well, it's great to be back to be talking to our friends on the Southwest Radio Church Watchman on the Wall broadcast. And it's good to be with you again and to have the fellowship with Brethren of Like Precious Faith. Brother Ken, we're going to begin our study today on the ministry of Peter. In our previous studies on this subject, we explained about the dispensation of God that so many Christians today do not understand how God works in different ages to fulfill his plan and purpose. And that just because God told Noah to build an ark, that doesn't mean that we should go out and build an ark. Or God told Moses to go up on Mount Sinai and get the tablets of the law, but he doesn't tell us to do that. What has God said to us? That is really the foundation for the studies that we're doing. On the program today, we want to discuss the ministry of Peter, and that is very important in our understanding of why there are so many churches today. Jesus Christ, at his first appearing in the flesh, came to none, as he stated, save the house of Israel. During the three and a half years of his earthly ministry, he ministered or preached to the Jews. He came to proclaim to Israel and to reveal himself to the house of David as the promised Messiah who would fulfill the covenants that God made to the fathers of Israel. The Apostle Paul declared that Jesus was a minister to the circumcision, or Israel, because Israel is the circumcision. Paul made this statement in Romans 15, if you want to go back and read the 15th chapter of Romans. God has made certain promises to Israel in the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. Now, we will not outline these covenants, for they are so many and would be so involved, it would just simply take too long. But we assume that these are common knowledge to any Christian with a minimal knowledge of the Scriptures. Briefly, they encompass Israel as God's chosen people, a holy nation on earth, to become God's witness in the world to all nations. And this is why God called Israel. All covenants point toward an era of peace, plenty, and righteousness on earth through a kingdom of nations in which Israel would be the head. And this is the millennial kingdom, and if there's not going to be such a kingdom, then we might as well take out about two-thirds of the Old Testament. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom from heaven, referred to as the times of refreshing in several scriptures, would be brought in by the Messiah, a son of David, who would reign and rule over Israel in Jerusalem. John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elijah, 
as mentioned in Malachi, went before Jesus to announce to Israel that the Messiah was coming, and this kingdom by which he would bring heaven to earth was near. We read the mission of John the Baptist in Matthew, the third chapter, verses 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The beginning of Jesus' ministry to Israel is located in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where it says this, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time forward to the cross, Jesus Christ never deviated from this ministry which the Father had committed to him. He taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes as a sign to Israel of the blessings awaiting them in the kingdom. He healed the sick as a sign that he was the one who would rise with healing in his wings. He raised the dead to reveal to Israel that he was the resurrection and the life. All these and many other wonderful things he did. But they were given as signs to Israel that he was the Messiah who would bring down the kingdom from heaven to earth. In the 15th chapter of Matthew, it's recorded that a poor Canaanite mother came to Jesus begging him to heal her daughter who was possessed with the devil. With tears streaming down her face, she cried, Lord, help me. But we read that Jesus answered her not one word. He ignored her. When she continued to cry, he turned to her and said, I am not sent but into the house of the lost sheep of Israel. It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Of course, because of the mother's faith, Jesus did heal her child, but the Lord first had to make it perfectly clear, not only to this Gentile, but also to the Jewish disciples, that he had come to minister to none but Israel. Even the Olivet Discourse had no application to the church, except that in the refounding of Israel and fulfilling of the many prophecies as they relate to the new nation of Israel. Christians know that the end of the church age is near and our gathering together to meet the Lord in the air is even at the door. It's very important for us to study the Olivet Discourse just as it is for us to study all of the Gospels. But the Olivet Discourse was not directed to Christians. It concerns the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. It concerns the dispersion of the Jews into all nations of the world for many days. It concerns their regathering into the land and the refounding of Israel as a nation. It concerns the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's troubles during the Great Tribulation. And it concerns the second appearing of Christ to Israel, not as a lowly minister and prophet, but as the glorified Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is of the greatest importance to our study to note that in spite of the miracles of Jesus and the many other signs that he gave to Israel during the three and a half years from his baptism to the cross, his ministry to Israel was not completed with the internment of his body in the tomb. Certainly, the evidence that Jesus presented to Israel proved without any doubt that he was the Messiah. But there were other prophecies that the prophets had made allowance for in their writings, and some of these definitely concerned the ministry of Peter. The unfulfilled prophecies concerning the Messiahship of Jesus up to the time he was taken to Calvary were, number one, the sins of the world were to be laid upon him, and he was to be smitten of God for them. You can find that in Isaiah 53.4. Isaiah 53.5 says, he had to be wounded for the transgressions of the world and to die a violent death. Isaiah 53, 9, he was to be laid in a rich man's tomb. The fourth sign was the sign of Jonah to be given to Israel. The Messiah was to rise from the grave after three days and three nights. You can find that in Isaiah 53, 9 and 10 and Matthew 12, 40. 
Josephus recognized that the resurrection of Christ from the grave was doubtless the greatest sign given to Israel that Jesus was the Messiah. Quoting this renowned Jewish historian now, he said, And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. Number five, the Messiah was to be cut off from Israel according to Daniel, and the fact that his first coming would be separated from his second coming by a period of time is listed in innumerable scriptures in Isaiah and other prophetic books. And number six, the Holy Spirit is to be poured out upon the sons and daughters of Israel, according to Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Thank you, Ken. Now, these final prophetic proofs that you have mentioned had to be presented to Israel as a sign that Jesus was in truth the Messiah. Jesus chose the apostle, most representative Israel, to present the second offer of the kingdom to Israel. He presented to Peter the keys to the kingdom. Peter, faithful at times and backsliding at other times, courageous and cowardly, boastful yet timid, running hot and cold, was so typical of the national character of Israel. However, when the Holy Spirit fell upon Peter and the rest of the Jewish disciples at Pentecost, this weakness was molded into strength, and Peter's nature was overcome by his finer and more stable qualities as he was filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened to Peter at Pentecost is representative of what will happen to all of Israel when Christ returns, and we can read that in Joel and many other prophecies. Now, that Christ did give Peter the keys to the kingdom is indeed fact, that Peter was recognized as the primal head of the Pentecostal church, is without question. His position in the early assembly of the disciples is clearly set forth in the first few chapters of Acts. But we now arrive at a critical point in our study of this subject. Why so many churches? What did Peter preach? What specific mission did Jesus Christ give to Peter? Well, we find a clue to what Peter preached and the nature of his mission in Luke chapter 24, verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It is unthinkable that Peter would have preached anything else. This message which the apostles and disciples were to preach is the same as that gospel which must be published among all the nations. And you can look at Mark chapter 13, verse 10 to find that. However... When we speak of gospel, we do not necessarily mean the gospel of grace. The New Testament speaks of two gospels, the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel in the original Greek text simply means glad tidings or good news. Peter preached the gospel and Paul preached the gospel. Yet this does not necessarily mean that they preached the same message. Peter had glad tidings for Israel and Paul had glad tidings for all the Gentiles. Now, the apostles, under the leadership of Peter, were commanded by Jesus to first preach the gospel in Jerusalem and then to all nations. The meaning here is quite strong and clear. The Gentiles were to be saved through Jewish apostles and disciples as Christ would be preached unto them according to the covenants of Israel. The law would go forth from Jerusalem, the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles, and all nations would look towards Jerusalem for spiritual leadership. 
This is one of the entities of the kingdom age, as we read in Zechariah and many other prophecies. But this is the kingdom gospel, the millennium. The gospel that Peter and the apostles and the disciples preached hinged upon the bringing in of the kingdom and in turn was contingent upon the acceptance by Israel of Christ as the promised Messiah. To Israel, Peter was acting in Christ's stead. He had the keys to the kingdom now. Both Christ and Peter are listed in the scriptures as ministers to the circumcision or Israel. Both preach the same gospel to Israel. Christ preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter preached as recorded in Acts the third chapter verses 19 and 20, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing, meaning the millennium, the kingdom of heaven, shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which was preached unto you. Peter preached that if Israel would repent and receive Christ as Lord, God would send him back to bring in the kingdom. Peter's message envisioned a return of Christ upon repentance in Israel to personally blot out their sins, as we read in Romans 11th chapter. We're going to continue now into the subject of Pentecost, or Pentecostal power. Peter was honored above the other 11 apostles in that Christ chose him to receive the keys of the kingdom, as we've already mentioned. Peter is recognized as a spokesman for the 12, and later as a chief pillar of the Jerusalem church. Now, with the Apostle Peter, we're going to continue on to Pentecost. Peter was honored above the other 11 apostles in that Christ chose him to receive the keys of the kingdom, as we've already mentioned. Peter is recognized as the spokesman for the 12, and later as the chief pillar of the Jerusalem church. After Pentecost, Peter naturally began to fulfill the mission which God had given him. Peter began to minister to Israel. Inasmuch as the ministries of Peter and Paul were separate, the Gentile church bodies must either claim all of what Peter preached or all of what Paul preached. They should not claim both. Yet all major denominations want to claim part of what Peter preached, but none dare claim all of his gospel. Churches will mix part of what Peter preached with part of what Paul preached, claiming only those doctrinal points which fit their theology. This is why we've had so many doctrines, sects, and denominations since the days of the Apostle Paul. If all had strictly followed Peter, there would have been no division. If all had espoused the gospel of Paul, the same would have been true. Let us analyze this gospel of the circumcision which Peter preached. We find Peter's first sermon recorded in the second chapter of Acts, beginning with verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. 
And it shall come to pass that whomsoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, let us think, Brother Ken, to whom did Peter preach this? Who got this message? Well, he preached to the circumcision, of course, as he was commanded to do. He preached to Israel. Did he preach to any Gentile? No, there was not a Gentile among them. He preached only to the men of Judea and those who dwelled at Jerusalem. What did he preach first? He preached at the beginning the message of Joel concerning the pouring out of the Spirit upon the house of Israel at the coming of the Messiah in the notable day of the Lord when all Gentile power and authority would be put down and the kingdom of heaven would be brought in. All the prophecies concerning the Messiah had to be fulfilled before Israel's eyes. The pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost was one sign that had not been fulfilled at that time. So in order for there to be a legal offer to Israel, that is, the legal offer to Israel that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, he had to be cut off, he had to be crucified, he had to be put in the grave, he had to rise, he had to send back to the Father, and the Holy Spirit had to be poured out upon the house of Israel. And what happened at Pentecost was the completion of these signs to Israel before the last legal offer of Jesus Christ as Messiah to bring in the kingdom would be brought in. We read that if Israel had done this, then as Peter preached, the times of refreshing would have been come in, Jesus would have come back, there would have been no church age. There would not have been a reason for the church age because the Gentiles would have been saved through the ministry of Israel. Of course, we know that that didn't happen. After serving in churches for many years, Noah Hutchings became interested in why those who profess the name of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord believe differently on hundreds of doctrinal issues when it's so obvious that all can't be right. After an appraisal of the entire spectrum of denominational differences, Noah Hutchings reduces the many ecclesiastical variances to one common denominator, the gospel of the kingdom committed to Peter to preach to Israel and the gospel of sovereign grace committed to the Gentiles. If you have ever wondered why there are so many denominations, sects, and cults, and why church memberships cannot agree on even simple doctrines, then you'll want to read and study Why So Many Churches by Noah Hutchings. Order Why So Many Churches today when you call 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order this excellent book online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Have you ever been accused of being on the wrong side of history for your Christian beliefs? Staff evangelist Josh Davis is here to look at what the Bible says about this wrong side of history argument. It has become increasingly popular in recent years to accuse Bible-believing Christians of being on the wrong side of history, especially when it comes to issues of cultural morality. Modern-day would-be prophets eagerly anticipate the demise of biblical Christianity in Western civilization, and they believe their ungodly views on the big questions of life are going to triumph and once and for all make the church irrelevant. You see, they have rewritten origin, identity, meaning to life, purpose, and destiny without God and without His Word in their attempt to chart their own course and follow their own desires. 
I believe they would heartily agree with William Ernest Henley in his poem Invictus. Quote, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. End quote. But what makes people so confident that they're going to be on the right side of history and that their side is the right side of history? What in their self-centered worldview allows such a prediction to come true? Is it more wishful thinking than it is accurate predicting? Let's look back at history and see who came out on the right side in the end. There was a man who stood alone in his generation. While everyone else pursued anything and anyone they wanted, he faithfully followed God. He must have stood out like a sore thumb in his generation because for years he hammered and he sawed away on a massive building project that nobody could figure out. What is this guy doing? And as he worked, he warned his generation that judgment is coming from God. But in the midst of their self-centeredness, they ignored his message and they went about living their lives however they desired. And they must have thought that he was on the wrong side of history. But don't you know, one day the divine judgment he predicted started to happen. It started to rain for the very first time. As the water level began to rise on planet Earth, people began to also realize that he was the one who was right all along, and they were wrong. It was too late for them to escape judgment. His name was Noah. He was on the right side of history. God carried him and his family safely through the judgment and used them to rebuild this planet Earth after the flood. Let's fast forward about 1,500 years or so to another man who seemed to be on the wrong side of history. He was certainly unpopular in his day, and he felt like he was all alone in his stand against such blatant immorality and political corruption that was going on during his lifetime. Everybody else was turning worship into a self-serving buffet of pleasure, but he faithfully followed God's truth and God's word, and he looked so out of place. He confronted godless politicians with God's truth, and he received death threats for those words he spoke. They were hunting him like an animal, trying to shut up this man of God. These wicked leaders made all kinds of shady deals, thinking they could manipulate the system to protect their power and provide whatever their greedy hearts desired. Yes, they were wicked, but they were not irreligious. Don't let this truth pass you by. They were not irreligious. They conformed religion to fit their lifestyle. You could say that they created a God in their image. They thought that they were the captains of their fate. But their day of reckoning came. Their God couldn't deliver them. The God of the faithful prophet proved in no uncertain terms that he alone was the one true God of all heaven and earth. The wicked rulers eventually lost their lives and they lost their legacy while the prophet of God flourished more and more. God cut off the descendants of those wicked leaders from the throne. Simultaneously, God raised up a new generation of prophets with the same convictions as this faithful man of God. The wicked rulers were named Ahab and Jezebel. They were on the wrong side of history. 
The godly prophet was Elijah, and he was on the right side of history. Well, let's fast forward another thousand years or so, and we're going to see a man who thought he was on the right side of history. I mean, he excelled in his education. His dedication was unmatched. His zeal was unrivaled. His tenacity for truth knew no bounds. His moral lifestyle was absolutely spotless. He heard about a growing sect that claimed to say Jesus is the Messiah. And he considered this to be blasphemy of the highest order. He secured permission and assembled a team to arrest the ones who were perverting his religion. And he chased them out of Jerusalem. He chased them village by village. In his religious rage, he presided over killing of one of their leaders. And as this Jesus' follower was breathing his last, he cried out to God in prayer, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Suddenly, the man who was observing this death began to question, you know, am I really on the right side of history? How could anyone offer such forgiveness while dying this kind of death? I believe he tried to push those thoughts to the back of his mind. He doubled down on his pursuit of these Jesus followers, but putting a stop to them was like trying to stomp out a wildfire with your feet. It's absolutely impossible. While he was chasing after more Jesus followers, he had the encounter of his life. He was transformed by a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Jesus made it clear to him that he was really on the wrong side of truth. Jesus delivered him from his self-destruction and set him on a glorious new path. He left all of his past and dedicated his life to sharing the good news of Jesus with the world. His name was changed from Saul to Paul. He was now on the right side of history. You see, the right side of history is always, always, always on God's side. The majority opinion may be against you, as it was for each of these three men, but the majority are not always on the right side of history. Standing faithfully and firmly upon God's truth will always place you on the right side of history because ultimately history is really His story. He is writing this story through His providence and His direction. So friends, let's ask ourselves this question. Which side are you on? If you're not on Jesus' side, you can be today by humbling yourself, repenting of your sins, and placing your faith in what Jesus has done for you through His cross and resurrection from the dead. He will transform your life just as He did Noah's, just as He did Elijah's, just as He did Paul's. One day Jesus will make it clear that His side is the right side of history. And He invites you to stand with Him in victory by placing your faith in Him today. Don't put it off another minute. Your history is being written each second of every day. Why So Many Churches will answer why there are so many denominations and cults and why church memberships can't agree on even simple doctrines. Why So Many Churches by Noah Hutchings is available today when you call 1-800-652-1144 or you can order this book online, swrc.com. Lord willing, we'll be back here Monday ready to once again bring clarity to the chaos. 
Don't miss a moment of Watchmen on the Wall. Download our SWRC mobile app or subscribe to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Head into the weekend, my friends, with the encouragement that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.